these images that we've been shown, and I'm looking forward to seeing what else people will share uh, during this season of Lent. And it's not just works of art like this, but art comes in many forms. And I, whether it's poetry or spoken word, movement, I'm just, I just love uh, experiencing and expressing our faith in these different ways. As we go into this Lenten season, considering the cross, the journey towards the cross, it's a time for us to slow down, as was said earlier, to consider where we are in our own journey towards the redemption that Christ has offered to us, this journey of faith, in discipleship. This morning, we are focusing on this idea of a glimpse of the cross. As we think of and we reflect on the glory of Christ, celebrated as he enters into Jerusalem. This triumphant celebration is like it's the beginning of the end. The people got it right to celebrate that Jesus was coming and that he was something important, something big. That his entry into Jerusalem was a pivotal moment in history and that there was a victory that was about to be won. But there's an interesting contrast here. A contrast between the hope and the joy that is being expressed with the betrayal and the suffering that Jesus endures on the cross. A triumph means that something has been won. And something is won, as we know, because we have seen and heard the good news of the cross, the death and resurrection of Jesus. But here in this story... The triumph hadn't happened yet. And the people knew that something was coming, but they didn't know the extent of it. In Mark chapter 11, we have this story of the triumphal entry. So we read it this morning. I find it really interesting to see how the writer of the gospel of Mark has prepared us leading up to this moment. As we heard in the story told for the children today in Mark chapter 10, we have the story of Bartimaeus just before we enter into the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. It's like he's preparing us. He's telling us, you have the people calling out, Son of David, Hosanna, recognizing that he may be the Messiah, the promised one. But in reality... Like Bartimaeus, they are blind. They do not see. They do not understand what is coming and why. In this triumphal entry story, what we see here is the crowds of people, the people of Jerusalem doing the right thing for the wrong reason. They're doing the right thing for the wrong reason. You see, the people knew something big was about to happen. 
The buzz had been building about this rabbi who had been traveling throughout the land, teaching, healing, performing miracles. He had healed people in miraculous ways. He had even raised someone from the dead. He was clearly a miracle worker, someone whose God's power was working through. He had even proclaimed forgiveness for sinners, claiming God's authority for himself. They had seen and heard this. They knew about it. They also knew that he was a wise and mysterious teacher. He used all these stories and parables about a coming kingdom. And they knew about kingdom because the Messiah that had been promised to them through Isaiah the prophet and through others in scriptures promised a king who would come, who would rule over the people in righteousness and bring freedom for them. They also knew that in his teachings and his stories and in his confrontations with religious leaders and scholars, he had questions that they couldn't answer. He tied them up into knots and he frustrated them at every turn. The whispers had been growing louder and louder. The rumors and speculation were now the word on the street. This man, this Jesus, he may be the one, the anointed one, the son of David, the Messiah, the king who was to come. And in all of this, they also knew that the teachers and the religious leaders were ready to kill him. And now here he was, entering into Jerusalem, even with that threat before him. This was going to be the showdown, the moment of truth, a defining, pivotal moment for the Jewish people, for the history of their nation. And so, as he enters into Jerusalem, riding on a colt, with the coats of the disciples on the donkey, and as the people laid down their coats in the streets in honor of him, they cheered him on as he enters the city, celebrating him. They could almost see already the triumph of God which was about to take place. They had a glimpse of that victory that was to come. And they were right. But they were completely wrong. Was Jesus the promised one, the Messiah of God? Yes! Did Jesus deserve all of this praise, adulation, this glory being given to him? Yes! Was there a great struggle with ultimate victory about to take place there in Jerusalem? Yes. And would it end with Jesus on a throne, ruling in righteousness? Yes. They saw, but they did not understand. They 
too were blind. They were right, but they were wrong. They were doing the right thing, but for the wrong reasons. The enemy that Jesus was there to confront was far more powerful and deadly than the one that they imagined, the Roman occupation and empire. The victory that would be won would be far greater than they could imagine or dream. Not just autonomy and peace for the nation of Israel, but peace and eternal life for all of humanity. And the throne that Jesus would rule from is far higher than they ever dreamed. Not just the throne of the king of Israel in Jerusalem, but the throne of heaven the ruler of heaven and earth over all of creation. We know how this story turns out. We know what happens in the coming days. The crowds disappear or turn on him in anger. The religious leaders arrest him and put him on trial for his life, accused of being an enemy of God, a blasphemer. The Roman Empire exerts its power and beats him, tortures him, humiliates him, and then executes him on a cross. And then we know there comes the resurrection. Death is defeated. Sin's power is broken. The veil in the temple is ripped in two. The separation between humanity and God has been bridged. The kingdom of righteousness, which is an eternal kingdom, is established through Jesus. And the cross, this symbol of cursedness and failure, of execution and humiliation becomes a symbol of triumph. This symbol of death has become our symbol of life, our faith and our identity in Jesus Christ. The brief moment of celebration and the adoring crowds celebrating this triumphant entry of the promised Messiah into the holy city of Jerusalem, they were right to worship and praise him. Jesus is the triumphant king of glory, but not for the reasons that they thought. One way of thinking about this is that is like the political activist and community organizer Saul Alinsky, who in the early 1900s said this, people always do the right thing for the wrong reason. People always do the right thing for the wrong reason. He wrote this in his, his famous book, Rules for Radicals, as he worked to address the plight of the poor and the downtrodden and the oppressed in the face of corporate power and oppression within 
his nation of the United States in the early 1940s and 50s and 60s. What he's pointing out here is that our motivations for doing the right thing are often suspect. Even within the good things that we do, there is a seed of brokenness and sin. Even when we are right, we are usually wrong. And here's the thing. Even though we are usually wrong when we're trying to do the right thing, we find hope in this. Our hope lies in knowing that God's ways, God's plans are greater by far than anything that we understand. Our dreams, our understandings, our imaginings are too small for God and His ways. We are often wrong because we are too small. Because our thoughts are too small. God's ways and plans are so much greater. They're greater than our failures and our limitations. We fail even in our best efforts because of our motives, because of our weakness. And so we find hope in the way of the cross. Because in the cross, in this great triumph that comes, we learn that all is not lost because we are too small, because we have not understood, because we have been blind. Psalm 103 says it this way, we find hope because he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. God always accomplishes his purposes. And in this, we can live in hope because we know that his purposes are always for the good, for our good. And we know that his promises are always kept. He is faithful. No matter how wrong we are, no matter how blind we are, no matter how Mistaken, confused, and lost we are. He always accomplishes his purposes. We learn in the scriptures that what we see and what we know and what we understand is always incomplete. What we see and what we know and what we understand is always incomplete. The Apostle Paul says that it's like we're looking through a dark glass. We can kind of make out the shapes of things on the other side, but we cannot see it clearly. 
But rather than this being a discouragement for us, rather than this being something which weighs us down, as people of God, children of Christ, in this we find hope. The people of Jerusalem saw an earthly Messiah, a king who would come to rule them, a son of David. He is the king. But not just any king. He is the king over all kings, all powers, all nations, all empires. All of creation bows at his feet. And for the people of Jerusalem, they saw him defeated, crushed, humiliated, taken and spread on a cross in nakedness, in cursedness. That death, that humiliation which they saw, was in fact the moment of greatest joy for all of humanity. Because that death was our death. That death on the cross was our entry into eternal life. God, even in what seems to be the darkest moments, is accomplishing His purposes. It seems that God is in the habit of confounding our wisdom. But he's also in the business of redeeming our mistakes and even transforming evil into good to accomplish his purposes. There's this great value reversal that happens over and over in the scriptures and in the gospel story and in the story of our lives where darkness is turned to light by the power of God. We have, for example, the story of Joseph, the coat of many colors. Do you remember this story from Genesis? In the story of Joseph, his brothers grew jealous of him. And so they decided to get rid of him. They were going to kill him But finally they got talked out of that plan. Instead they faked his death and sold him into slavery. It broke his father's heart. And it seemed that that family was destroyed. But then as the story of Joseph goes on, we find out that in Egypt he is raised up to a position of power and authority and he becomes the salvation for his family and for all the people of that area of the world during a time of great famine. For those of you who are into this kind of thing, there are interesting parallels here between the story of Joseph and the story of Jesus. The typology of salvation through God's purposes being accomplished. We also have the story of Paul, the apostle in the scriptures, 
who had been living a life completely opposed to the purposes of God, fully convinced that he was doing the right thing, unlike others who may have been doing the right thing for the wrong reasons, he was doing the wrong thing for the right reasons. He wanted to serve God faithfully. But he was so wrong. His whole life was dedicated to the opposition of what God was doing through Jesus Christ. And then he encounters the risen Jesus and his life is transformed. And we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, But Jesus has said, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And Paul says, so I will boast in my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. God takes a story of darkness and evil and turns it to light and to joy. We have in our own history as an Anabaptist people, we have these stories of how for our faith, and our desire to serve God well, we were persecuted and oppressed and put to death. We were given a name, Anabaptist, those re-baptizers. It was a mark of shame. We were called heretics. And now, we can carry that name with joy because we walk in faith, and Jesus has shown that we are faithful in serving him. I remember back a few years ago, well, more than a few years ago, when there was this um, song that came out that was called Jesus Freak. And what it did was it took this idea of being called out for being a faithful follower of Jesus being called names for wanting to serve God faithfully and be his disciple, being called a freak. And over time, that name has now been turned around. There has been a value reversal and now it's an honor to be called a Jesus freak. Someone whose life is sold out for the cause of Christ, who is willing to give up everything for the glory of Jesus. Insults and persecution become a place of honor. As it says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to us, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In our frailty, our sickness, our diseases, our failures, the testimony of God's power shines through us. Through our testimony, as we are transformed and empowered by the Spirit of God within us. As many of you have already heard this week, one of our brothers here in the church, Lawrence, 
has been given a diagnosis of brain cancer. And he underwent a surgery just a couple days ago where they removed the portion of the tumor and they're trying to determine the path forward. They don't have a prognosis yet. I was speaking with Lawrence yesterday. And he reminded me again how even in the midst of the darkness and despair of these challenges that come in our lives, the Spirit is there at work. And he said, you wouldn't believe it. God keeps answering prayers and showing up in miraculous ways in the midst of this time of grief and struggle. God takes darkness and turns it to light. As it says in 2 Corinthians, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show this all-surpassing powers from God and not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, confused, but we don't despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're struck down, but we are not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our bodies. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. And so we rejoice amidst our tears. We celebrate in the midst of our mistakes and our failures. We cheer and we give glory to Christ in the midst of our weakness and our dyings because we find our hope in the cross. Here in this story of Mark chapter 11, the people are celebrating the arrival of the Messiah. They're doing the right thing even though it's for the wrong reason. But we find hope in this because God is bigger than us. God is greater than us. His ways are far higher than ours and God accomplishes his purposes as we have seen and heard throughout the centuries of the resurrection of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. I look forward to sharing with you and hearing from you in our sermon discussion at 11.15. I invite you to join me there as we talk about the hope we find in the cross. <laughs>